to keep looking at the theme of stewardship. Uh, you can go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where we're going to spend our evening together. And as you do that, if you are employed, you're probably going to spend a third to half of your life working. If you are working the average hours of a normal American, which is about 50 hours a week, including four or five hours on weekends. How many of you work more than 50 hours a week? Don't be embarrassed of your workaholism. Okay, just three of you. I feel like I work more than 50 hours a week. Um, Yeah, so if you're an average employee, you're doing about 50, which calculates to about a third to half your life at work, which is significant if you think about how you spend your time and where you spend your time. Some statistics, according to Forbes magazine, indicate that 53% of Americans are currently unhappy at work. 58% of the employees trust a stranger more than they do their own boss, which is a shocking statistic, and some of you are nodding your heads. Um, 79% of people quit their jobs because of the people they work with or because of the people they work for. Those are some significant statistics over the work, regarding the workforce because they indicate that the preoccupation that we do most, actually for most Americans, is least satisfying. And they would change their jobs if they could. So if that describes you in any way, that you are not fully satisfied at work, I'm going to give you some suggestions for another career. Is that Okay. You could become a Netflix tagger. Maybe there's somebody like that in here. Is anybody a Netflix tagger? All right, so you can watch movies on Netflix and then tag them for other people to view them. And you can make up to 85000 a year doing that. I also recently learned about a few days ago that Hallmark Channel also can do that, and you can get paid $200 a movie if you're willing to put yourself through the torture of watching a Hallmark movie, (laughs) and then you can get paid a couple hundred bucks for that enjoyment, or if you need a different kind of job, you can become a professional snuggler. So companies hire people, and you can pay them a dollar a minute to eat lunch with you because you don't have any friends at work, and so not to eat alone, you can pay somebody to do that. Or if you just aren't having a great day, you can pay this person a hundred bucks, and they'll come and give you a hug. It's an expensive hug, right? Make friends, save your money. If you don't like hugging, then you can become a chief shopping officer. You guys know about this? You can personalize. You can become a personal shopper to somebody, and they're willing to pay you up to three hundred thousand a year. If you can help somebody pick their wardrobe and kind of manage all of their the closets. So this is in addition to the CFOs and the CEOs, you can become a CSO, Chief Shopping Officer. Or if you like the outside, you can be a dog walker. In New York City, dog walkers make 150000 a year. Yeah, some of you are about to switch your careers. <laughs> This one professional dog walker says, you have to have a sense of the dogs if you're going to do this career. You have to like dogs, because apparently dogs know if you don't like dogs, and they'll be vicious to you. You're not supposed to be texting when you're dog walking, because you've got to pay attention to what the dog is doing. And you have to know the personality of the dog. You have to know if the dog is an introvert or an extrovert. You've got to put the introverted dogs up front, I'm sorry, inside, and then the extroverted up front because they're the troublemakers. You've got to keep them closed, and you've got to make sure that you're always regulating them. It's a billion-dollar business in the United States, dog walking. That's how much people spend. So they work 20 hours a day in New York City, and somebody else walks their dog. Or you can become a private island caretaker. You move to an island, and then your job is to manage that island. Everything on it, you can make $300,000 a year, by doing plumbing and carpentry and gardening, housekeeping. That's a pretty cool job. I'd do that. Move to Hawaii and just live there and make 300000 to keep Hawaii. Finally, those of you who are super ambitious, you can become a professional sleeper. You get to test out different mattresses. 
in hotels, in businesses, and so they basically expect you to fall asleep on this mattress. When you wake up, you're supposed to give a review for this mattress. Unfortunately, they only pay you 18000 a year. I think that's below minimum wage. And that'd be even legal. There are unique careers out there if you are really dissatisfied with your career. And when you begin to think about what people do most and spend the majority of their time on is work. How many of you are currently working? Raise your hand. Definitely the majority. I think only the younger kids are not working. Everybody else is working or studying. In other words, preparing for a career. And I would say, if you're a student, your job now is your school. Because you're setting yourself up for a lifelong career in some profession and something that God expects of every single Christian. As we get into this whole idea of stewardship, I think it's important to consider what it means to be a steward of the preoccupation that you will spend the majority of time on, and that is work. Because in that environment, you too, and I am, expected by God to be faithful stewards. If you read the book of Proverbs, it speaks often about the work ethic. There's so many verses you can just Google them at your own time, or you can find a little concordance that will help you understand what the book of Proverbs teaches on work. But there is a biblical theology of work. Steve Lawson says it this way. God did not create a man for a vacation, but for an occupation. You see, work, while it's difficult in our fallen world, is, a, is a difficult because of the sin that we have to engage in at work. It still is something that God designed for men before the fall. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, this is what we read. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So when God creates man, and this is the introduction of the creation of humanity, God says there's a link between the image of God and the responsibility of man and woman to work. And to do so in a way that is a, they are representatives for God in this world. They are ruling or governing over the creation of God. It's a stewardship, in other words. If we're the representatives, then we have been given a stewardship by God in this world. And this, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, is pre-fall. So even before the origin of sin, God designed man to work. When you open up scripture, God is the first one working, not Adam. The entire first chapter of the Bible is God working. Tim Keller describes this scene as God with dirt under his fingernails. God is creating the world for six days. Psalm 8.3 says, the heavens, it's the work of your fingers. God creates the entire universe and then entrusts it to man to manage and to steward. Of course, the New Testament says that Jesus is the agent of creation. The entire Trinity was involved in the creation process, but uniquely so, the second member of the Trinity, the eternal Son, he was functioning as that agent through whom God the Father executed the plan for creation. And then God gives a mandate to continue that management of creation to man. And so we understand that God has placed us in this world with the responsibility to work. Martin Luther says this, Your work is a very sacred matter. God delights in it. And through it, he wants to bestow his blessing on you. For the world doesn't consider labor a blessing. Therefore, it flees and hates it. But the pious who fear the Lord labor with a ready and cheerful heart, for for they know God commands and wills it. That's the right perspective for the Christian. That is a command from God. It is God's will that we work. With that quote, Luther isn't saying that the unbeliever doesn't work hard. 
Many unbelievers work extremely hard. They, they work extremely long hours. But it does mean that there's a different motivation and a different satisfaction that is gained by the believer through work versus an unbeliever. Here's the motivation, the satisfaction, or the description of the unbeliever in the work environment, according to Ecclesiastes 1.3. This is Solomon's explanation of how a person works apart from God being a part of the work process. Ecclesiastes 1.3. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? So when a non-Christian thinks about the work that he's supposed to do or she's supposed to do, end of the day, it's vain. It is tiresome. It is like breath on a cold day. When we go outside after this message, most likely it will be colder than an hour ago, and so we might even see our breath, and it's just fleeting. In other words, you keep working and working and working, but it just fades. So he responds to that kind of an approach of vanity in regards to work and says this at the end of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. You see, without a biblical understanding of work and the stewardship that God has entrusted to man and woman as his agents and as his representatives bearing the image of God and then imitating God as the model who worked in Genesis 1 and 2, work is painful. It is tiring. It is meaningless. And for some, it becomes a God as they become workaholics. So how do we shift from this perspective of frustration to a perspective of fulfillment? Ecclesiastes 2, 24, Solomon says, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink, and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? So now you're introducing God into the process of work, and Solomon says, yes, without God, it is toil, it is pain, it is vanity, so I hated life because of the work that I had to do. But you bring God into the picture and he says, it is good. For who can work and have enjoyment in that labor without him? See, in this sin-cursed world, God says in Genesis 3.19 to the man, by the sweat of your face, you will eat your bread. That is the curse, is that work will now be more difficult. There's going to be resistance from creation when we try to subdue it and mine it and steward it as a way to be God's representatives. And yet, it is supposed to be part of our daily existence because 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10 says this. Paul says this. If anyone is not willing to work, then he should not eat either. So there's an expectation that a Christian isn't a leech in society. He doesn't just receive payments, stimulus payments from the government. If you're unwilling to work, the Christian work ethic ethic is that you should not be eating either. A Christian works for his bread. But beyond that, a Christian is to use his job to draw people to the gospel. In Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul says to the servants or slaves, Urge the slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not stealing, but showing all good faith so that they would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. The word that Paul uses for adorning the doctrine of God is the word for beautifying something. It had to do in the ancient world of a woman putting on makeup to beautify herself for a special occasion. So in other words, Paul says, as those who work, and in the ancient Roman environment, the slaves, really the whole system, was an employment system. If you have more questions about that, we can talk about it later. But Paul says, those who are servants or stewards in a household, your responsibility 
is to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not stealing, showing all good faith. And through that, you will draw people to the gospel. You will beautify the gospel of Jesus Christ in everything. That's the ultimate point of our work, is to draw people to the gospel, to make it attractive because of how we work. The Bible doesn't limit this expectation to a secular or a sacred industry. It's not only for pastors, it's not only for Christian musicians, it's not only for anybody working in a Christian parachurch organization. No, this expectation is for every single believer in every single industry. So how do we do this daily? 10 hours, 12 hours, 16 hours a day at times, monthly, annually for the next three to four decades if you're just starting out. How do we approach our careers in such a way that when we look back at the end of our life, we can honestly say, for the last 40 years, I have made the gospel attractive in my work environment. And people were drawn to Christ because of how I worked. As you think about work, sometimes in the Christian environment, it typically gets applied to men. Man is the provider. He's supposed to be the protector of the house and the family. And so he works and the woman doesn't. That is not the biblical model. In Proverbs 31, you can go there because I want to read a significant portion of that. In Proverbs 31, I'm sure all of you know this passage because it describes the hardworking woman. These are the words of Lemuel. And some have said that this is a description of Ruth. And so this is how it says in verse 10, Proverbs 31, 10. An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. My heart, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax all, and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. And from her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp doesn't go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household for all of her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes covering for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and doesn't eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also praises her. Says, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she will be praised. Give her the product of her hands and her works praise her in the gates. This is the model woman in the Old Testament. The one who is so diligent and so dutiful that she is an entrepreneur. She's in the real estate business. She's in the scarlet business. She makes wool scarlet, so goes and buys it and sells it. She works hard from sunup to sundown. Everybody in her household is taken care of. This chapter indicates that the man is known in the gates, verse 23, and he is recognized by the elders of the land. The idea there is that the highest level of leadership in ancient Israel, those leaders were positioned by the gates. As people entered the city, they would meet the leaders of the city first. And at the end of verse 31, let her works praise her in the gates. She is known at the highest level of leadership in the society, politically speaking, because of how she works. 
In other words, we're talking about the parliament in the UK system or the White House or Congress in our system. The, the reputation that she has in caring for her house and being a businesswoman is such that her reputation is at the very highest level of leadership in the city. We know that scripture promises that to the individual who works hard. That's what Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He won't stand before obscure men. So there's this expectation that whether you're a man or a woman, you work hard in God's economy, in God's system. Now, Titus chapter 2, verse 5 says women are to be workers at home. It doesn't say to work only at home. It just says to be workers at home. And the actual word there is to be a guardian of the house, which is very similar to what we read in Proverbs 31. So the biblical model is that a woman also works hard like a man is supposed to work hard. Yes, Genesis 3.19 speaks to the man being uh, working hard as he sweats to make bread or to earn bread. But the woman similarly is expected to be hardworking in whatever commitment she makes. Yes, the full holistic biblical model and presentation is that when a woman is married and she has a household to manage her priorities in the home, but it doesn't prohibit her from working outside the home. Now, it's not easy. I'll grant that. I'm not married. I don't have a wife, so I'm not speaking with no experience whatsoever. But I am speaking through observation, but also through scripture, is that it is hard to manage multiple children and then another one big child. But the Bible says this is how you operate in the godly environment. And she's known at the gates. I want to make sure that as a Christian, and I know many of you work really hard. I've talked to some of you this afternoon. You're working super hard in your careers. But recognize that God expects people to work hard and diligently. Now, we'll talk about imbalanced work styles in a minute. But for now, understand that the biblical model is we are stewards and we excel in our work. And if we do so, then your reputation as a worker will echo in the hallways of the highest level of leadership. The partners and your company will speak about you. The senior managers will speak about you. And people will know that your reputation is one who works hard. When you turn into the New Testament side of things, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul gives us a very direct expectation of what it means to be a Christian at work. I'd like for us to read verses 10 through 12, and that'll be the focus of our discussion this evening of how do we steward our time at work? What are the principles that should govern our careers as long as God gives them to us? In verse 10, right in the middle of the verse, Paul says this. We urge you, brothers, to excel still more, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and to work with your own hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward the outsiders and not be in any need. If you look back to verse 1, excel still more appears at the end of verse 1. And that is a reference to sanctification. The first few verses all the way down to verse 8, the focus is sanctification. So excel still more in your sanctification, in your pursuit of holiness as a Christian. All of us will stand up and confirm and affirm and applaud that expectation. That if you're a true Christian, you will progress and you will excel in your transformation from sin to holiness to be more and more like Jesus Christ and how you think and how you speak and how you act. That's excel still more in the process of sanctification. Paul picks up the same language in verse 10 and says, now let's talk about something else. Excel still more. In verse 9, the focus is love. So excel still more kind of begins to be in the middle and says, in love towards other people and in your career. As you attend to your own business, you work with your own hands so that you would behave properly. So the excel still more principle now applies in three categories. Holiness, 
loving other people, and in what you do with your life in your career. We are to excel still more. Now, if somebody says, well, it says, I urge you brothers. Hey, that's men. Men are supposed to, to excel still more. Well, that would then mean that in verse 13, where also brothers reappear, the women would be left behind at the rapture because the brothers are the focus of the rapture section that follows. And I'm pretty sure the girls don't want to get left behind. Right? Come on, what? This is amazing. Yes? You want to get left behind? You don't want to go to Millennial Kingdom? There's a gospel of Thomas. I know there's a few people who really like academics here. Um, there's a gospel of Thomas. There's a conversation between Jesus and Peter. And Peter says, Jesus, Jesus, Mary is not a man. How is she going to get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, I'm going to make her a man so that she can get into heaven. So maybe that false gospel of Thomas is true. If you think brothers in verse 10 is only relevant to men. The point being, brothers is a general address. It applies to both genders. In other words, both genders are expected in their commitment to excel still more in loving, in sanctification, and in your environment of your career. So Paul gives us six principles by which we're to govern our careers. The first one being excellence. Excellence, which is the idea of progress. If you think about the last hundred years of our civilization, humanity, it is defined by this one word, progress. Just think about that. And many of you are in technology, so you know this better than I do. That we went from horses to cars to planes to private space travel in a hundred years. We went from phones to computers to virtual reality to now the Apple glasses. What are they called? Vision Pro, right? So everything is advancing and progressing. We went from a magazine where you had to cut out coupon codes to now your phone telling you you should buy this because this is kind of predictive of your shopping habits. The ancients used to pay for their product with salt. Then they went to coins. Then they moved on to credit cards. Then they moved on to paying with your phone, with your Apple Watch, and now we pay with our palms. And who knows what's next? In other words, progress characterizes humanity. That's the meaning behind that word. Excel still more means you are advancing in your work environment. You're advancing in your holiness. You're advancing in your love for other people. You're advancing in your work environment. But secondly, the second principle that governs our career is make it your ambition, in verse 11, to lead a quiet life. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. The idea behind ambition in the ancient world was political. Senators, generals who wanted to have an office in the Roman Empire would be ambitious. But the idea being you would outdo your contender and your opponent through good works. So you would build something for the city. You would do something kind for the people that would then vote for you. So you're basically buying your votes. And so you compete with the other candidate by outdoing him, by being ambitious through your good works, and thereby, hopefully, you can be elected to office. That's the word that Paul uses here. He says, make it your ambition to outdo others at work in being quiet, peaceable. Your reputation at work is not feisty. It's not rebellious against your boss. You don't push back. You don't argue, I wanted that client. I wanted that client. I don't want to do this for you. Now, in the first couple of years of our careers, we're very, very timid. We do whatever our boss tells, you, right? tells us, right? But as you get more comfortable, more stable, you might be one of those who opposes his or her boss. Paul says your ambition should be to be to lead a quiet life. That should be your reputation. It's interesting that this, again, follows the eight verses of holiness conversation. In Romans 12:14, uh, sorry, Hebrews 
the author says, pursue peace with all men and sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. So Hebrews 12, 14, that author blends sanctification and peace as does Paul here. And there it's more graphic, you could say. You will not see the Lord if you don't pursue peace and sanctification. That's the level to which peaceability as your reputation should describe you. The level of holiness. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In other words, be calm, be peaceful, don't be hostile at work. But there's another element here that we need to consider. Make it your ambition. I said this last night, that whenever you see an author in the New Testament go out of his way to use a term that seems to be unique or rare, we need to pay attention. That's relevant for the word ambition. Only Paul uses this word, and in only three places. This place, we just talked about it. He also uses it in Romans 15.20. Romans 15.20 says this. It was my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. So Paul now says, I'm going to outdo, not competitively against Peter or James or John or some other apostle necessarily, but to say that I want my life focus to be as if I am outdoing, competing, moving forward, progressing in preaching the gospel where no one has ever heard it before. That is a gospel-oriented life. That is advancing the kingdom of God into areas where Christ hasn't been known. That's the 1040 window. That's the uttermost part of the earth. So Paul says, it's my ambition to be a gospel proclaimer to essentially everyone, especially those who will not hear it otherwise. That's the other place he uses it. And then there's one more, 2 Corinthians 5.9. In 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says this, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, alive or dead, to be pleasing to him. So Paul's ambition was to preach the gospel. Paul's ambition was to please the Lord, whether I'm alive or dead. In other words, whether I'm with Christ in heaven or I'm here on this earth. That's my ambition. I would say all of us would commit to those two verses for ourselves. If God gave you the opportunity and the desire, you would say, I do want to preach the gospel to those who've never heard it. Wouldn't you? I mean, if you believe that heaven and hell is at stake, whether somebody believes or doesn't believe the gospel, and Spurgeon says, I will crawl over glass to share the gospel with somebody. I think that's your attitude too, because if you are saved from hell for heaven, from judgment to joy, permanent eternal joy, if you believe that there's no salvation apart from the name of Jesus Christ, and that hell is eternal, and judgment is eternal, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and that is eternal. Separation from God is eternal. And we can even grasp eternality in our finite world, and everything is within time. That's how we operate. Everything has an end. This sermon has an end. Some of you are waiting for that end. Everything ends. But hell doesn't end. Heaven doesn't end. And if you truly believe that, you will say, I will preach the gospel to a person who's never heard it, and that is my ambition in life. And you will also say, if I'm a true believer, I really want to please the Lord. That's it. In this, that's it. That's all I want to do. And I fight my sin. And I fight my jealousy and envy and my thoughts and my speech. I'm, I'm, I'm exercising self-control. I'm doing whatever I can that Scripture expects of me as a Christian because I really do want to please the Lord. That's my ambition. You have to take that level of elevation, weightiness, gravitas, and apply that same understanding to this verse. Make it your ambition to be peaceable to be a peacemaker, to be known as somebody who outdoes others at work 
And he's a peaceful person. He doesn't go and start riots. He doesn't burn buildings down. He doesn't turn over property like police cars and on and on and on. That's one of the reasons why Christians don't support all of that violence. Because our ambition is to be pleasing to the Lord. It's to be peaceable. And I hope that we can honestly value ourselves in our career environment. Is that my reputation? Or am I so comfortable with my superior or my co-workers that my reputation is a little bit more boisterous and feisty? And I'll argue because I just don't like what I'm being asked to do. Paul says, make it your ambition to be peaceable. Well, there's a third principle that should govern our careers, and that is in the next phrase. Attend to your own business. Mind your own business. That's contentment. So excellence is our first principle. Peace is our second principle. And contentment is our third principle. Mind your own affairs. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says this. We hear that some of you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, acting like busybodies, not minding your own affairs. First, Timothy 5.13 says this. At the same time, they are idle. They go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies. 1 Peter 4.15 says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer. Listen to the list. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. From Peter's perspective, to meddle in other people's business is as grievous as being a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer. And so Paul says, this is our third principle. Make sure that you're content with what has been assigned to you in your career. Literally, the idea for meddler is to oversee other people's lives. Imagine a child when a parent turns on the phone and children just gravitate to the screen that just was turned on, right? And they want to see what's on that screen. And sometimes the parents push them away because they're not supposed to be seeing what's on the screen. But that's the idea. You just gravitate to managing and looking into other people's lives, into other people's business. And Paul says, that is not how a Christian operates in the work environment. You attend to your own business. You mind your own business. How do you do that? Well, you fulfill the fourth principle, and that is diligence. Diligence, when Paul says, work with your own hands in verse 11. Work with your own hands. Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor between the year 161 and 180, so toward the end of the second century, he was a philosopher. He was not a good emperor in the sense of towards Christians. He persecuted Christians. But this is what he said about work. At dawn, when you have trouble getting out of bed, tell yourself, I have to go to work as a human being. What do I have to complain about? If I'm going to do what I was born for, the things I was brought into the world to do, or is this what you were created for, to huddle under the blankets and stay warm? You've got a secular philosopher emperor reflecting on the purpose of man and says, do you think you were created to stay in bed all day for the rest of your life and stay warm? Or were you created to work? So if a secular evil emperor, emperor understood that, how much more the Christian who has the theology of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, and then, of course, the New Testament passages. And as much as we understand that expectation, unfortunately, as much as sin corrupts everything else in life, it also corrupts work. And so what ends up happening is one of two things, I think. One is laziness. And we avoid responsibility to work. Laziness creeps in into our work environment and we avoid the responsibility. The Bible says this in Ecclesiastes 3.12. I know that there's nothing better for a man than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. 
Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, that's a gift of God. So in other words, there's nothing better than to work, to eat, to drink, and see good in your labor. That is God's gift to you. I know we don't often think about work as God's gift, but it is God's gift to us, making us productive. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Because when you die, you're not going to be working. Tim Challies writes this about work. Work is not significant only when it utilizes my full capacity. Work is not significant only when it offers unusual challenge or special opportunity. Work is not significant only when it is measurable in dollars and cents or praise and compliments. Work has intrinsic significance because it gives me the opportunity to do something with joy, with joy in the Lord. I can do my work in such a way that it glorifies God, or I can do it in such a way that it dishonors Him. Anything I can do to God's glory has significance. It has great significance. So instead of justifying our bad attitudes at work, I have no passion for this project. The Christian's mindset is, I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to work with my own hands. It doesn't mean that you can't switch jobs. It doesn't mean that you, can switch, you can't switch careers. It doesn't mean that if you really believe that you are being abused by a boss who wants to be promoted, and he or she is building their career upon yours, in our world, in our modern world, we have the freedom to change that in our lives. And I've talked to two people in the last seven days who are in that work environment. And it's challenging. I used to work at Deloitte six years. I know what it's like to work in an accounting firm, big four, and the hours that you've put in. I worked through all night. I've done 30, 40 hours straight before. I get that. You have deadlines. You have clients you have to satisfy. You have individuals you have to manage and all that. I get that. But if that's your life over and over and over, and you're thinking, what in the world? Mark, are you telling me that I need to stay in this environment for the rest of my life? No, that's not what the Bible says. But the Bible does say that if you made a commitment to that job, to that career, to that firm, then you are to work diligently. And God does give us the opportunity to change our jobs. So sometimes we avoid diligence through laziness. But there's another extreme, and that is we become workaholics which means we derive our identity from work. That is what I think a workaholic is. He or she begins to find value in themselves through work. How many hours I work, and so there's a bragging that begins to take place. I did 12 last year, or last, not last year, yesterday. I did 16, I did 18, I did 20. Start talking to iBankers. Anybody an iBanker here? Good. Okay, that was safe. I'm treading in safety categories. Uh, but yeah, when I was interviewed at UCLA for a, a future job, I was interviewing with banks, iBanks and all that. And you talk to those people, and yeah, some of them are working 20-hour days for three years straight because they want to make it to the top MBA program, and that's just the career path they've chosen. Workaholism is not godly. We talked about this last night. Our identity is in Christ, not in how many hours we work. Not in how fast we got promoted. Not in the kind of bonus that we got this year. Because we worked so hard. Harold Abrams, who was a runner in the story of Chariots of Fire, Eric Little, I'm sure most of you know about that story. Christian runner in the early 1900s in the Olympics who refused to run on Sunday. And so he ran in a different race and won gold. Well, he had a competitor, Harold Abrams. And he said this when somebody asked him, why do you run? And this man responded this way, I run because I have 10 seconds to justify the meaning of my existence. That's a workaholic. Otherwise, I have no meaning in life. Madonna says this in an interview, nobody works the way I work. And all of my life and will has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear of inadequacy. 
I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to the next stage of inadequacy. And I keep thinking I'm mediocre. I'm uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is rooted in this horrible feeling and fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am that somebody. That is the definition and the picture of a person who finds their identity in work. But a Christian doesn't. And so we align our lives accordingly because we do not work in order to find meaning or value. And sometimes we make excuses. I'm working hard because of my family, because of ministry, and life becomes imbalanced. And the Bible says that a true godly individual is a balanced individual. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 gives us an interesting insight into this discussion. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 16 says this. Don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. Why would you ruin yourself? Verse 17, don't be excessively wicked and don't be a fool. Why would you die before your time? It's good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. So what Solomon says is this, you and I are prone to excesses. We can become excessively self-righteous. And two verses later, he says, there's not a man who is completely righteous. In other words, we can be prone to go hard in one direction, or we can be prone to go hard into another direction. And that's imbalance in either case. But the one who fears the Lord comes with both of them, meaning you live in the middle. You live a balanced life. You understand that you need to please the Lord in everything that you do. So you have to have a balanced family life, ministry life, work life. That's the meaning of Ecclesiastes 7, 16 through 18. And that is what Paul is going after ultimately. Work with your own hands. Be diligent, but do not be imbalanced in your life. Because we have to remember that even though God entrusted the stewardship of this world to Adam and Eve, he did not leave them without a relationship with himself in that stewardship. God continued to walk in the cool of the day, Genesis 3.8, after the responsibility to be a worker or a steward was imposed on them. In other words, work was never meant to replace a relationship. It was always meant to be a stewardship within the relationship with God. So if work, your career, becomes a competitor to your relationship with God, that's a problem. If it becomes a competitor to your ministry in the church, that's a problem. If it becomes imbalanced so that it becomes, begins to affect your relationship with your family, that's a problem. And that is an indication that you have become a workaholic. You are finding your meaning in your job, not in the Lord with whom you are united. So Paul says, if you work, work with your own hands, be diligent. But there's a fifth principle that governs our career, and that is just as we commanded you so that you would behave properly toward the outsiders. That's dignity. So that you would behave properly toward outsiders. That you would be dignified is the meaning of that phrase. Proper decorum, proper prominence, your reputation as an ambitious individual to outdo others in peace. An individual who works hard is paired up with dignity. This is a royal term. It's what we should think about when we think about the royal British family. And when you think about the British family, you typically think of proper dress. They stand in a certain place. They stand in a certain way. The world is watching them. It takes a long time for them to prepare for any public appearance. 
Everybody is listening to every word. There is dignity that's expected of a royal monarch. And Paul uses that kind of language here. He says, it's as if you are royalty. Not in some self-aggrandizing way, but you have to understand that you are representing the king of kings. And so your work is to be characterized by dignity. It matters how you dress for work. It matters how you carry yourself at work because you represent God, the king of kings and lord of lords. Because of what Colossians chapter 3 tells us about work. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Because from the Lord you receive the reward of your inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. So Paul repeatedly says, remember, you're working heartily for the Lord. You're serving the Lord. He'll give you the reward. In verse 22, he says, you do this fearing the Lord. It literally is as if your immediate supervisor is Jesus Christ. And if Jesus was your immediate supervisor, how would you adjust your current attitude at work? How would you adjust your current peaceability at work? How would you adjust your current diligence at work or dignity at work? Because we can't forget about Colossians 3 when we talk about 1 Thessalonians 4. We don't forget that we are an advertisement, according to Titus 2, for the gospel at work. Because people are watching. People are listening to your gospel presentation. And they are comparing your work ethic to your profession and who your master ultimately is and what he expects of you. So that's why Paul says, behave properly at work toward the outsiders. And finally, the sixth principle that governs our career is success. The ending of verse 12, do not be in any need. Don't be in any need. In other words, don't spend the rest of your life depending on others. God will honor your work. And typically, again, according to the book of Proverbs and just general life rules, if you work hard, you will be rewarded for that with pay and with bonuses and promotion. So there's this rule that God has instilled into human civilization that if you work hard with your hands, there will be success typically that follows and there'll be a reward that follows that. And so Paul says, be such a worker that you are not in any need. It doesn't mean that you are not in a position perhaps sometime in your life when you do need help from other people. That's verses 9 and 10. Paul says, as to the love of the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brothers who are in Macedonia. So the first half of this little paragraph is that I know that you love others. I know how you sacrifice for others. I don't have to tell you anything about how to love other people. In other words, they were excelling in loving other people. But let me tell you a little bit about excelling at work. So the balance to the ending of verse 12 is verses 9 and 10. Is that, yes, do not be in any need, but whenever you do have a need, or if you see a brother in need, we step up and we help that need. That's what 1 John 3 is all about. That is one way to have assurance of our salvation is that if you see a brother in need, you don't tell him, go, born, go warm and be filled. You actually help them in that environment. So there's a balance of being in need at certain points because of life's trials and because we live in a sinful world. But end of the day, what Paul says is, if you work with excellence, with diligence, with dignity, in peace, with contentment, you won't be in any need. And you can see the work ethic exemplified by many individuals in the New Testament. Paul was a tent maker. Peter was a fisherman. Jesus was a carpenter. Lydia was a merchant of purple fabrics, which means she dealt with the most fine and expensive fabrics in the Roman world, which means she probably had a very unique and expensive store in Philippi, where she's found, Acts chapter 16. And she, was, she had such a big house that she was able to hold the first church in Philippi. So what you see is you see Christians who are diligent, hardworking, and they are presented as examples for us. In Romans 16, 
This chapter is typically known as a list of people who are associated with Paul. Many, many names are mentioned here. But there's two that stand out that I want to note for you. In verse 6, it says this, Romans 16, 6. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. That's all we know about this Mary. We don't know her last name. We don't know anything about her biography. All we know that Paul noted in inspired scripture for the rest of Christian history. Mary was a hard worker. And then you skip down to verse 12, and he says this, Greet Persis, the beloved, he has worked hard in the Lord. So two people, all they get is that they were hard workers in the Lord. Can you imagine if that's all that it said on your tombstone? Here lies your name. He was a hard worker. She was a hard worker. And according to Romans 16, that's enough. Because it's your ambition to preach the gospel, to be pleasing to the Lord, and to work hard for the Lord. That's the level that the New Testament sets for the Christian in that environment. Tim Chalice again says this. Every day and every moment, I have a choice. Will I do my work in such a way that it glorifies God? Or will I do my work in such a way that it dishonors him and displeases him? In the face of such questions, I know my work matters. No matter what my work is, it matters. It matters because my work is a stage to bring glory to my God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through God the Father. Whatever you do, you might be a housewife, a mom, with little kids running around, and your life is insane. You're a worker at home. And that quote applies. You might be the CFO of Google, or CEO, or CTO, or CIO, or CSO, the shopping officer person. Whatever job you have, that quote applies. You do it to the Lord. And here's where stewardship kicks in. In Acts chapter 13, you've read this if you've read your Bible, and I'm going to bet you read it and you didn't pause to even think about it. But in Acts chapter 13, in verse 36, it says this, David, after he had fulfilled the stewardship as the purpose of God in his generation, died. Who's David in the Bible? He's a king. He's the one who is the man after God's own heart. He's the one through whom the Messiah came. He has the Davidic covenant behind him. His son built the first temple. The promises we talked about earlier today, if you came to my seminar, the Davidic covenant and the significance of that for eternity is a big deal. All it says in the epitaph of David's life, David, doesn't even say King David, David, after he fulfilled the stewardship that was the purpose of God for him in his lifetime, died. That's every single person. It doesn't matter how significant you become in this world. It doesn't matter what title you have after your name, whether it's PhD or EDD or THM or MBA or whatever number or letters you have after your name. It doesn't matter how famous you become. What journal will carry your picture in the front? You as a Christian have a stewardship that God has given you for the rest of your life. And after you fulfill that stewardship, you'll die. And the question for us as we think about stewarding your life for God is will we be faithful to fulfill that stewardship? It is of utmost importance 
that stewards be found faithful. And I hope that is the desire of our hearts and the commitment of our lives. Lord God, we are thankful that we have examples in Scripture of men and women who fulfilled their stewardship entrusted sovereignly by you to them in their generation, and they did it faithfully, and we can imitate. I pray for all of us here that we would recognize that we're not that important, that we have a role to play as your stewards, and that we need to be faithful. And once we fulfill that stewardship, you will bring us home. And people will forget us. And people won't visit our graves. And we might be alone for the rest of our lives. But if we faithfully fulfill the stewardship that you've entrusted to us, we will hear you welcome us into your kingdom and say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome into the joy of your master. That is our ambition, to be pleasing to you for the duration of our lifetime. We pray this to the honor of your name. Amen.